Let's just pray again and ask for God to really help uh, this morning. Lord, we, we come before you. We thank you so much that, that Christ Jesus allows us and has brought us into fellowship with the Father and brought us right into access with you. And we're so grateful to know that as we pray and as we, as we sing this morning, we, are, we know that you're hearing us in heaven. We're so grateful to know. Um, and you, you delight in our presence. You delight in our singing because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Uh, and we're grateful. And we thank you for this beautiful letter that you've given your church and uh, the, the, the help it's been to thousands and thousands of people over the generations. And we pray that this morning it would just might help us as well here. Uh, Lord, help me to teach your word faithfully and help us all to, to hear and to put it into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, the last time I came, we were in the letter to the Ephesians. And uh, we were exploring Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. And really what we were looking at was what does it look like to be a mature Christian or to be a mature church? That was the, the theme that we were exploring. And interestingly, we were noting that a truly mature church isn't necessarily one that has mastered the, all the different doctrines of primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines. It's not necessarily a church that has a busy program or a church that has a robust understanding of eschatology. Now, these things aren't meaningless, but we were saying that that's not what marks a church as mature. Uh, we, last time I was here, we looked at how the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church were an extremely gifted church. All the gifts were uh, enriched in them, it says, and they were extremely knowledgeable in all points of doctrine. And yet Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and says, you're extremely immature. Remember that? So you've got all your theology, right? And you've got all your gifts and you're busy with your programs and yet you're remarkably immature. Does anyone remember why was the Corinthian church immature? Anyone know? Sorry, if you weren't here last time, I do like to shout out and then stand awkwardly and look at everybody uh, and then answer it anyway. So does anyone remember why the, why the church was, at Corinth was immature? Division, yeah. So they were divided, weren't they? So they've got their theology right on point. Paul says, I don't need to teach you this stuff. And he keeps asking them the question, do you not know? Do you not know? Implying, like, I taught you this before. So they have their theology. They've got their gifts. And yet they're immature because they're divisive. And Paul says that's, that's an, a mark of immaturity in those guys. So we saw in Ephesians that Paul said that walking in maturity was to walk in a deep, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered unity with one another. That's maturity. To walk in a deep, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered unity with one another. And, and we saw that a mature believer, a mature individual Christian, is someone who is lowly or humble, someone who is gentle and patient and enduring, long-suffering, and was striving for unity. In other words, to, to flip it into the negative uh, a, 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 an immature believer, someone who's genuinely saved but is not mature, is someone who is divisive, impatient, demanding, prideful, ungentle, unkind, and cutting. And uh, that, it's, it's just challenging to hear that and think, man, I need, I need the Spirit of God to be working in my life then to produce good things in me. So that was Ephesians 4. And Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, Walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, right? Walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. And now we're here in Philippians, and we're in verse 27, and look what it says in verse 27 at the start of it. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And here in Philippians 1, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So both epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Paul is saying to these guys, be worthy of this. Live like, like you're worthy of this. Okay? Now, we're going back to Ephesians 4 verse 1. To, to walk worthy of your calling. So Ephesians 4 1, walk worthy of your calling. And what that looked like, if you follow the rest of the passage, was to walk worthy of the calling you have in Jesus is humility, gentleness, patience, and unity with one another. That's what it means to walk worthy. Take Paul's word for it, right? Now we're here in Philippians. So we turn to this letter of Philippians. Walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your conduct be worthy of this gospel. And what we want to explore this morning is, what does Paul think it looks like to walk worthy of the gospel? 
When he, when Paul think, when Paul writes, sorry, walk worthy of the gospel, what comes next? And that's what we're going to explore this morning, okay? So let's just read it again, verse 27 of Philippians 1. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I don't get to see you, I may still hear of you and your affairs. And what does he want to see? What does he want to hear? That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, Philippi was a free Roman city. Okay? It, was, it was gifted freedom and Roman citizenship quite a few generations before Paul writes the letter. Many in Philippi were Roman citizens, and uh, so they, they were very proud to have this citizenship. The believers in the city understood whether they had it or not, that the unique status and privileges of being a Roman citizen were quite special. So whether they were Roman citizens or they, they didn't have it, they knew that being a Roman citizen was top stuff. Um, and so the word conduct here in verse 27, only that your conduct, does anyone else have a different translation that says something other than conduct? Conversation, King James. You got, so you got the key, only that your conversation in the King James. New King James is conduct. I think ESV's conduct. Anyone else got anything else? Manner of life is in some of the translations as well. Manner of life. So the word, what's this word saying, right? And uh, the word actually translates like this. Behave like a citizen. Behave like a citizen. That's how the word literally translates over into English. Behave like a citizen. So if we can read that into it, it says this. Only let your behavior as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what it's saying here. Now, the citizenship of the believers living in Philippi wasn't about them being Roman or not. What's their citizenship? What's the citizenship that a believer has? Yeah. To, to belong to Jesus, to, the, our citizenship's from above. Anyone know where it says that in Scripture? Just a few chapters over, right? So let's, let's stay in Philippians 1, scroll over to chapter 3, or scroll or flip or whatever thing you have that gets you to the chapter. Chapter 3 and verse 20. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's writing to these Philippians, whether they're Romans or they're not Romans, Paul says, you belong to Jesus now. Your, your citizenship is in above. You are free men and free women of the city above. So we go back to chapter 1, verse 27, and Paul says, let your living out of this citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, live like it's true. Live like it's true that you're a citizen from above. He's, he's not saying this. Please don't get me wrong. He's not saying live in such a way so as to earn the citizenship. Because we know the citizenship we have from God is freely given, right? He, we trusted in Jesus as Savior, and he brought us into the family. He brought us into the kingdom. We belong to Jesus by grace alone. So he's not saying live in such a way so that you will be worthy of the gospel, so you'll earn it in some way. He's saying this, since you've been freely granted the citizenship through the gospel of Jesus, live like it's true. Live like it's true. So I was in Specsavers the other day, and uh, up, in, up in Stoke where we live, and the guy was you know, up in my face examining me, probably needed some chewing gum, so did I. And uh, he's this close and he goes, so you're from Northern Ireland then? I'm like, yeah. And I was like, yes, he knows. Like, I've been, out of, I've been out of Northern Ireland for 14 years, but my accent is, it's, it's disappearing, it's diluting. Sorry to the Northern Irish people. Um, but, but it's still there. It's there enough that he's like, I can hear the Northern Irish. And I'm like, yes, I'm still living out my Northern Irishness in such a way worthy of the people of Ulster, you know? And so the people can recognize that in me. And this is really what Paul's saying. Hey, guys. You've been freely given citizenship. You're free citizens of the city above. Live worthy of that. Not to earn it, but because you've already been freely given it. Uh, most people who still live in the country that they're from, 
they, they love their country, but it, I find when it's people who live outside of the country that they're from, that's when they're proud to, of, their, of the country. That's when they're like excited about the country and they big up the country. I've spent uh, all yesterday with Clayton and he wouldn't stop talking about how great South Africa is. You're like, oh, whatever, man, you know, get over it, right? Uh, but he, he's, he's proud of his city. He's, he's proud of it. He loves it. And, uh, and this is the idea. We live worthy of our, we represent it well. So, so this is what's saying here. You've, you've been freely given the citizenship, live worthy of it. So the question is this, what does Paul go on to say? How do these Philippians live worthy of this? So that's the question you and I should have in our minds now, as we think, right, okay, we've been freely given the citizenship. Paul is calling us to walk worthy of that now, to, to live it out in our lives. And the question left to us is to think, what's that going to look like? What does it look like to live worthy of the gospel? Well, we don't have to wonder very long because the answer comes at the end of the verse. And this is it. When Paul, this just blows my mind. I've been studying this principle in the New Testament for about a year now, and it keeps blowing me away. When Paul says, walk worthy of your calling, walk worthy of the gospel, um, what's on his mind is at the end of verse 27, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. According to Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's what it looks like to live worthy. Unity amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellowship. Genuine, mutually loving, helping fellowship with one another. Uh, Victoria and I go to football matches up in Stoke. We, we go to watch Stoke on Trent get beat now and then. And uh, Victoria only comes because she likes the pies, but we still go. And um, last time we were there, Stoke won 6-1. Right? And we, we'd been, at the, up to this point, we'd been to seven games and Stoke had not scored one goal. And they kept getting beat. And it's just tragic. You know, you're paying your money, you're going, nothing happens. They scored six goals. And every time Stoke City scored, I was up on my feet like, yeah! Like, I'm not even from Stoke, but now I've adopted them as my team because I live there. So I'm like, yes! But it's not just me doing that. I'm in a, I'm in a crowd of like thousands of people and we're all screaming at the top of our lungs, celebrating the fact that Stoke scored. And every time they scored, we're up there. Uh, so it, what, is, what it is, it's like I'm one individual, but I'm one individual celebrating with thousands of people as if we're one person. And then they start singing the songs, you know? Like, you know, you know some of the, the songs that get sung in football. Some of them you shouldn't sing as Christians, right? But, but some you can. And uh, you're, we're all singing it. We're all like one body of people made up of all these individuals. And that's the church. That's what we're called to be. It says here again, stand fast in one spirit. You're made up of all these different people, but stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's just, it's amazing. When, when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, thinks about what it looks like to walk worthy of the gospel, in his mind and in his heart is us in unity with one another. Isn't that, isn't that really just interesting? Because um, we know that the human flesh is not like that, is it? We're naturally divisive. We're naturally wanting our own way. We naturally want our own preferences. So unity is like not going to happen. Uniformity is what we would have. Everyone bow to my desires and demands, please. But unity, that's, not, that's something only the gospel can produce in us. So that's, that's the first bit. Chapter 1, verse 27 Walking worthy of the gospel is to walk in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to go over to chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 5. And what I want to look at, so that was the call to unity. What I want to look at now in chapter 2, verse 1 to 5 is the flavor of that unity. What's it going to look like? What does this unity look like amongst us? Is it, is it a begrudging unity? You know when you're, when you're like... You're kind of like, you're being nice to one. You've ever had people that you're, you're being nice to each other, but you can tell there's just nothing. It's not a real friendship there. It's just, just being polite with each other. Uh, maybe not in London. Maybe, maybe everyone just tells you like it is in London. I don't know. But, but there's just this niceness. Uh, is it a begrudging, like under the current tension, but we're just going to put on the appearance of friendship? Um, is it a unity where you demand your way and everyone has to follow suit and then you're all united because everyone's bowed to you? Sometimes there's some unity like that. Well, let's look at it. Chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 5. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. 
What, what Paul's saying here in verse 1 is this. If it's true that you, born-again believer, have freely received in Jesus consolation and encouragement, if it's true that you freely receive loving comfort from him and fellowship and affection and mercy, if it's true that you have received these things, and just pause for a second and explore that with me. Have you, as a, as a born-again believer, as a follower of Jesus, have you experienced Jesus console and encourage you? Have you experienced that? Can we, can, can we, like, can we say amen, maybe? Amen. All right. Have you experienced Jesus lovingly comfort you? Yeah? Have you enjoyed the fellowship of knowing Jesus? Have you been blessed by his kind affection and his gentle mercy? So that's, when you're reading verse 1, that's what you're meant to be thinking about. Like, wow, it's true that all these things are in him. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you have experienced those things. In your sin and your mess and your... Thank you so much. I was praying that that would be on your mind there. Thank you. Uh, this is like, did you, how did you get this? Just me. Man. You've got one too? I'm going to get like a, a nylon one or something from now on. So, in your sin and your mess and your rebellion, Jesus consoles you. When, you. when you've messed up, when you've sinned against somebody or just sinned in some way and you're feeling guilty and you're feeling ashamed and you're feeling really low and you come to the scriptures in repentance to Jesus, does he beat you over the head? Does he say, no, 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 work for it and then come? Merit my forgiveness. Does he do that? No. Jesus consoles you with the promise that he's forgiven you. He lovingly comforts you with the truth that he will not hold your sins against you anymore. He is still, even in your mess, present with you because he promised to never leave or forsake you. And he's still, even though you don't deserve it, showing you kindness, affection, and gentle mercy. And also in your sin, or sorry, in your suffering and in your trials and in your hardships, Jesus consoles you with this compassion, doesn't he? When, when life is hard and things are tough and you've got things in the week ahead that you're, that you're worried about or afraid of, and you come to the scriptures and he consoles you with his compassion. He lovingly comforts you with the truth that he cares deeply for you and he's powerfully working in your life. He does not abandon you, but he sits close to you and he pours out his tender mercies and his kindness is upon you. And so verse 1, Paul is saying, if it's true that Jesus really is the source of all this, and you've experienced it from him, then show it to others as well. Show that to others. If that's what you've received from Jesus, and that's the type of savior that he is to you, then show that to one another. Verse 2, if it's true that there's consolation. If it's true that there's comfort, if it's true that there's fellowship, if it's true that there's affection and mercy found in Jesus Christ, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So if it's true that Christ really is all these things, then the way for us to live that out is verse 2. By being like-minded with one another. By having love for one another. By being of one accord and having one mind with one another. And again, verse 3 to verse 4 gives us the flavor once more of what that looks like in the negative. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not only on your own interests but also for the interests of others. So the truly mature Christian, the, the Christian that's truly experienced in verse 1, will no longer make decisions based on just what they want, whether that's in the church or in your home life or in your work life. You'll no longer just do things to make you look good in front of others. You'll no longer only think about your own needs and your own preferences. But rather a mature believer who's walking in fellowship with Jesus, experiencing all the bounties and beauties of verse 1, lives that out by humbly counting others as more significant than themselves. And that's the opposite of the world, isn't it? The world, you just go on Facebook and every three minutes someone is declaring that they're going to live this year for themselves. And you're like, you've been living every year for yourself. Now you're just letting us all know you're going to do it. 
And yet the Christian life, the call that Paul has for us under the inspiration of God is this, humbly count others as more significant than you. Can I, can I just say, that's not Alan Campbell. That's not me. I, I can't live this. I cannot walk into a room full of people and think, I'm going to treat everybody in that room as if they're more important than me. My flesh will not let that happen. So I need, I need Jesus working in me. I'll be moved, a mature believer is moved to treat others as more important than themselves, thinking about the needs and concerns of the other individuals within their church family rather than just what they and their little gang wants. So we receive all of this from Christ, poured out upon us abundantly from Jesus, and then we turn out and pour it onto our brothers and sisters. You know, has anyone ever been to the Dead Sea before in Israel? Yep. Have you floated in it? Yeah. It's not, have you ever drank it? It's lovely, right? No. So, um, so you float in the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is known as the Dead Sea because it's dead. Yeah. So just in case. So not, there's no life in the Dead Sea. All the animals in there die. Right. And, and here's the amazing thing about the Dead Sea. The life of Israel flows into the Dead Sea. Like, have you ever been up into the north of Israel and you've seen that the rivers, just torrents of river? That all flows into the Dead Sea, like torrents of rivers. Like, like just life flowing into the Dead Sea. And then you get all the way down to the Dead Sea and all this life flowing into it and it's dead and stagnant. Why is the Dead Sea receiving all of this life and yet it's dead? Why is the Dead Sea dead? Is it a bit louder? There's no outflow. There's no outflow. So all the life is flowing into it, but there's no outflow, and so it's dead. And that can be true of us as believers. All this, verse 1, all the verse 1 is flowing into your life. God has graciously given you that. You don't merit that from God in verse 1. He is graciously in his kindness and in his goodness. Because it's who he is, is pouring out consolation, comfort, love, fellowship, affection, and mercy upon you. And if you receive all of that and you don't let it flow out to other people around you, it's just death. It's death. And so what's meant to happen is we receive all of this from Christ and then it flows out of us into the church family, into our brothers and sisters in love. We receive it and then we give it out. And Paul says, if we live that way, if we, if we receive from Jesus, and then we live out verse 3 and verse 4, not just thinking about what I want, not just thinking about what makes me look good, not just thinking about my needs, but concerning myself more and more with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and loving them, and generous to them, and affectionate, and merciful toward them, then verse 5, I will have the mind of Jesus. I'll be like my Savior. I'll be truly Christ-like. And what's so beautiful about verse 5 to verse 11, which we'll not spend a, long, a lot of time in this morning, verse 5 to verse 11 is telling us that Jesus did this and God the Father was pleased to exalt him because of it. If you, if you look at verse 9 of chapter 2, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. Why, why did God the Father highly exalt Jesus? If you look at verse 9, with the beginning of the word, beginning of this verse says, therefore. Why, does, why did God the Father delight and exalt in Jesus? If you follow the flow of the argument, he delighted to exalt the Son in this context because the Son was willing to humble himself to serve other people. That's what it's saying here. Therefore, he highly exalted him because of his willingness to humble himself to the service of others. And we know God's word says he loves to exalt the humble ones, doesn't he? And bring down the pride. So I hope you're like me and you're thinking this, man, yeah, I want to live in unity with my brothers and sisters. I want to walk in on Sunday and not just walking in on, into this church building, but throughout the week, I want to have my, the heart's and minds and, and needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and including the difficult person to love. Does anyone have someone in the church family who's difficult to love? Hands up. I'm just joking. <laughs> Come on, confess. Uh, point if you need. Um, that person, I want, I want to love that difficult person the way Jesus loves me. Yeah? I want to love that difficult person the way Jesus loves that difficult person. 
I want to love that difficult person the way Jesus loved his enemies. And hopefully, if you're honest this morning, every one of you is thinking, but I, I can't. I've got nothing in me. I mean, I can put on a good show for about 15 minutes, and then they do something else that winds me up, and I'm, I'm, I'm me again. I've lost it, you know? Um, and, or I, you know, when I don't see them, I'm thinking really good thoughts, yeah? Like, I'm, okay, love that person, love that person, pray for them, love them, serve them when they come, and then they're there, and you see them, and you're like, and it all just tumbles to nothing, right? Anyone ever been there? I've been there, right? You don't have to invite me back. I've been there. I struggle to love people. I'm a, I'm a messy sinner who needs Jesus every day. So if that's you, which it is, and you're just not being honest if you haven't owned up to it yet, uh, let's go to verse 12 to verse 16. So we saw the call to this unity. Walk worthy of the gospel by living in unity. We saw the flavor of it. It's, it's a... It's a it's a unity of mercy and tenderness and affection for one another that serves the people within the church family, that puts them before yourself. And now we see in verse 12 to 16 the motive and the power for this unity. The motive and the power for this unity. So as we consider these passages so far in Philippians, there should be two conflicting thoughts going through your head. Number one, I want this to be true. I want to live this way, and I want to be part of a church family that treats each other this way. And number two, I don't have the desire or the strength to live this way. Okay? So verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as we know, you guys already know this, this does not mean work for your salvation, and it does not mean work out if you're saved or not. It's not saying work out whether or not you're, you're a Christian. It's not saying that. What this idea of working out your salvation means is to cultivate, okay? To, to bring out of you what's already inside of you, okay? So right now, am I the only person sweating in the room? Are we sweating? Right? So there's salt just pouring out of us right now because there's salt in, inside of us, right? So we've got it in us and it's coming out of us. And that's what this idea means in verse 12. Work it out, cultivate it, bring out of you what's already inside of you. And what's already inside of you according to this verse? Your salvation, yeah? Eternal life, new creation, the spirit of God indwell in you and seal in you for eternity. Christ in his infinite mercy and love tenderly with you. Work all of this out. But look at verse 13. Verse 13 is one of my favorite verses in scripture. It is God who works in you. Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Does anyone have a different translation of verse 13? Shout it out if you have something different than to will and to do. You got, no, will and to do. Who's, who's got something other than to will and to do? Will, will and to work? Will and to work, yeah. Anyone else got anything else? Will and to do, will and to work. Okay, here's, here's what this verse is saying. This is, this is so beautiful. It is God who is working in you the desire and the strength to do what pleases him. It is God who's working in you. Dear Christian, struggling with sin this week, feeling like you can never overcome it. Christian who's struggling to love his, his wife or struggling to love her husband or struggling to love the kids or kids struggling to love parents. Whatever, whatever your situation is. I can't live this way, God. You're calling me to live a certain way. I can't do it. And this verse says, I know you can't do it. <laughs> So I'm working in you, not just the strength to do it, but the desire to do it comes from God. The desire to live the Christian life does not come from you. It comes from him. That's what it says. It is God who's working in you, the will to do what pleases him, and the strength to do what pleases him. Yes, such good news, because you can come honestly before God with commands in scripture that he's calling you to live in such a, such a way, and you can come to him in all of your brokenness and honest confession to him and say, God, I don't even have the desire to do what's right right now. My husband is driving me mental. No? I don't have the desire to be patient with him. I don't have the desire to love him. I don't have the desire to be gracious. But you can give me that. I don't have the desire to show kindness and forgiveness to this person who's wronged me. 
but you can give me that desire and you can give me that strength. So this call to unity stuff that we're looking at this morning and the character and the flavor of this unity, you individual believer and you as a church, you have no strength and no desire to do this. But for Jesus, he was actively working all of this in you. And all you get to do is work it out, what he's working in. He's putting this in you, Dead Sea stuff, the life is flowing into you, and you just work it out. You allow Christ to work it out of you into others. Uh, Victoria and I, we, in our home, we have those little diffuser things. Anyone got any of those? You plug it into your wall, and it just lets water out for three hours with nice smells. Anyone got any of those? Yeah? The White Company, Seychelles, top stuff. Uh, right. So what you do is you put your little water in there, you put your six drops of oil, and you close it over and you turn it on, and it just works out what's been put in. And it, over, over three hours, just lovely smells come into your house, right? Probably bad stuff too, toxins and whatever, but good smells, it's worth it, you know? Might die earlier, but we die happy, yeah? So whatever, you know? Glorified body one day and stuff, whatever. So the smells come out, and that's the idea is that it's in us, and it's working out of us, this fragrance of Christ-likeness, this flavor of mercy and kindness and gentleness and patience towards each other. Now, okay, here, here's where we're, let me, let me break this down. So verse 13, God is actively working in each of you, the desire and the strength to please him, okay? Now, I'm going to skip verse 14 for a second and get to verse 15. Whatever, everyone's looking at verse 14 quickly before we skip it, right? I'm going to get back to it, I promise. So whatever it looks like for God to work this salvation out of you, according to verse 15, if you allow God to work out of you what he's working in you, then you, individual believer and church family, will be a blameless, harmless child of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, or some translations, holding forth the word of life. So, whatever it looks like to work out your salvation, if you do this, if you allow it to happen in your life, you will shine brightly in a dark world. I mean, you, you prayed it today, sister. Last time I was here, you were praying it. The world's dark, isn't it? Do you want to shine brightly in a dark world? You know, like recently everyone's got their, their windows open at nighttime because it's roasting hot and the lights are on. So like every bug within a three kilometer radius is just like, it's just coming and you're like, oh great. Like, let's go to bed with all the creatures tonight, you know? Um, and so they're attracted to the, the darkness is attracted to the light. So we, we are going to shine brightly in the world if we work out our salvation. So much so that we will be blameless and harmless and without fault before them. And it uses this word perverse, this twisted age that we live in. And verse 16, holding fast to scripture, holding it out to the lost around us. So let me, let me just say it again. God's working something in you. He's working the desire to live this way and the strength to live this way. If you let him and you work that out of you, you will shine brightly in this dark world. The question then is, what is it? What, is he, what does it look like to shine brightly in a dark world, right? What does it look like to hold forth the word of God? What does it look like to work out your salvation? And the answer is verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. There you go. Do all things without complaining and disputing. The word complaining can be translated grumbling, discontent, murmuring, and finding fault. Anyone good at those things? Yeah. The word disputing could be translated arguing and bickering. Anyone good at those? Yeah, I'm, I'm naturally gifted, yeah. And Paul says, God is working in you the desire and the strength to not live that way anyway, anymore. And if you live that way, if you work out what God's working in you, that's how to shine brightly in the dark world. That's when Paul, when Paul thinks about how does a Christian shine brightly in the dark world? And our minds go to like, well, morally clean in certain ways and, you know, straight with theology. And all these things are important. But in Paul's mind, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he writes, stop moaning. Stop complaining. 
Stop disputing. Stop bickering. Stop finding fault in one another. And that is how you'll shine brightly in a dark world. Because that's what the world's good at, isn't it? The world's good at complaining and bickering and murmuring and finding fault and arguing. It's good at that. And we're naturally good at it. But according to Paul, the evidence that Almighty God is working powerfully in an individual is when that individual stops doing verse 14, stops murmuring, and stops disputing. So let me, let me say it this way. If you're a person who's full of grumbling and full of finding fault, then you're not working out your salvation. You might have read 15 systematic theologies. You might be able to draw the eschatological charts. You might be able to be busy in your programs and busy with your evangelism and you're cleaning all sorts of other ways. But according to this passage of scripture, if you're grumbling and discontent and murmuring and finding fault and arguing and bickering, you're not working out your salvation. You're not working out what God's working in you. This is challenging. <laughs> but it's such good news though because... Verse one, chapter 2, verse 1 is true. He's still merciful. He's still affectionate. He's still kind. He still consoles you, even when you're not like that. And he's still powerfully working in you these things. Okay? So don't be discouraged. Just be, like, convicted, you know? <laughs> like me, I'm convicted. I'm like, man, God, help me uh, in my marriage and in my friendships and my relationships. Help me to be like this more and more. Right, we get to verse 19 to verse 21. And uh, this, this, this just challenged me. Again, it's about this unity. We're looking at this unity stuff today. Verse 19 to 21. He says, But I, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know about your state, how you guys are doing. Look what he says in verse 20. I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. So he says, Paul, Paul says, Timothy is genuinely concerned about your welfare. And when he's there with you guys, he will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Okay? Now look at verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. This is really, these two verses together are really powerful verses. We live in the West, uh, and there are subtle, dangerous idols that we have here in the West. And we're, we're so unaware of these dangers that we fail to realize just how much they've entangled our lives as Christians. And one of the greatest dangers of the West is individualism. Would you agree? Individualism. Me and Jesus. Me and what I want. Me and my needs. Me and my preferences. When I get home from work, I switch off. I put the, the door, close the door and close the windows and no one can get in except the bugs because it's too, too warm outside. Uh, no, no humans though. And uh, I'll see you Sunday. See you Sunday Christianity is what we call it in our church. See you next Sunday. And you don't, you don't ever engage that other believer again until next Sunday. See you Sunday. See you Sunday Christianity. All right? It's the, one of the greatest dangers in the West. It's crept into Christianity to the point that we believe that you can be a mature Christian on your own. Can we bust some myths this morning? It is impossible, according to Scripture, read Colossians, Chapter 2, verse 2. We don't have time for it. Read Colossians 2, verse 2 in your own time. It is impossible to be a mature Christian on your own. It's impossible. You need your brothers and sisters to be a mature believer. To be separate from the church family is, is just unheard of in the New Testament. It's alien to the New Testament. So check out what verse 19 to 20 said, uh, 21. Paul is going to send Timothy. He says, Timothy is genuinely concerned with the believer's welfare. And what Paul says that means in verse 21 is that Timothy is concerned with the things that are of Jesus Christ. So if we, if we can say that in simple terms, what this is saying is this. To sincerely, for you as an individual this morning, 21st century, Bridge Christian Fellowship, to sincerely seek the things of Christ is to genuinely concern yourself with the welfare of your brothers and sisters. If you look at verse, these two verses together. If I am sincerely seeking the things of Jesus, what that will look like in my life is that I'm genuinely concerned with the welfare of my church family, the individuals that make up my church family. Are you catching that? That's what this is saying here. In, in the negative, if, if you're not seeking the welfare of the individuals of your church family, 
the individuals of your church family, then you're not seeking the things of Christ. If you just put these verses together, to seek the things of Jesus is to seek the welfare of my brothers and sisters. So you see how individualism is just garbage in the New Testament? See you Sunday Christianity, Jesus and me? This is not biblical New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is I seek the things of Jesus by seeking the welfare of my brothers and sisters. The reason I love my brothers and sisters in Jesus is because Jesus calls me to. And if I genuinely love Jesus, then according to 1 John, how will you know I love Jesus? How will you know that I love Jesus? Because I memorize portions of scripture? Because I pray for seven hours in the morning? Because I've mastered systematic theology? How will you know that I love Jesus according to the scriptures? That you see the love we have for one another? Yeah? That's the only way. That's That's the evidence. According to John chapter 13, that's how the world will know we're genuine followers of Jesus. And according to 1 John, that's how anyone can tell if someone's a genuine follower of Christ, that they love one another. So let's, uh, we'll get one more. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Chapter 4 and verse 5. It says this, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. There's two, there's two interpretations of the Lord is at hand. Some people believe it means the Lord is close, like he's, he's near us right now, like he's in our midst, so we should live this way. And most people believe it means Jesus is coming, right? The Lord is at hand, right? So who believes it means that second one, Jesus is coming, yeah? We, we, who, who in this room believes Jesus is coming back one day, yeah? Who's looking forward to that? All right. <laughs> Not everyone put their hands up. It's concerning. Uh, all right. Jesus is coming back. And uh, back in chapter 3 and verse 20, some beautiful things are going to happen. It says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, eagerly waiting for him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. We are eagerly waiting for Jesus. And what a day that's going to be one day. We'll be presented to Jesus. And I'm so looking forward to the fact that I'm going to be presented to Christ faultless and blameless. It says in Ephesians, without spots and without wrinkles. Victoria and I got married three years ago. And uh, I woke up on my wedding day and I had a huge spot right there. Right there in my head. And you know, you try to deal with it get rid of it and stuff and it's like it's like no I'm here all day that's the the spot was like no me and you we're, we're together all day now and uh Victoria's walking down the aisle and she's like she walks into the church building and my spot's like isn't she pretty like it's it's just massive spot and she can see it from the other like she can see it it's like Victoria come it's like a you know I'm over here Victoria like the, the big spot and she's like whoa and she comes all the way up to me, and she, you spotted it, right? You, can't, you couldn't help but spot this ginormous creature. Uh, and so she's looking at it, trying to look at my eye, but, you know, you, know, you can't look. You know, one of those ones, you just can't look away. It's hideous. And uh, by, by God's mercy, Photoshop exists, and our photographer got all rid of it on the photos. So I look, I look good on the photos. Um, but on the day that we're presented to Jesus, for the wedding day that's coming, There'll be no spots, no blemishes, no wrinkles. Right? And we've, had, we've been at three weddings this summer, and uh, I, I love weddings. Weddings are, are the best, you know? Um, and I, I get to marry people, and I get to preach at weddings, and so I get like kind of like a bit of a front row seat. And I love looking at the bride when she comes to the door, but my favorite thing to do after I've seen the bride is to turn and look at the groom and see his face. How is he reacting? And so far, all the weddings hasn't been like, he's not doing that. You know, that's every wedding I've, I've been able to be to, uh, the groom is just beaming, you know, this massive smile on his face. He's just so happy. She's so beautiful. He's excited. She's coming up the aisle towards him and uh, he's smiling. And that's what's coming for us one day. Jesus will gaze on you. 
without scrutiny. Without scrutiny. Without shaming you. Without pointing out your blemishes. On that day, you and I will bask in the warmth of his smile as he presents us to the Father with great joy. We'll we'll have a, a body that will never sin again. And a body that will never be tempted to sin again. I think we looked at it last time. Whatever sin that you're struggling with in your Christian life right now, whatever sin keeps getting you down and keeps wrecking you and you know, like, causing you shame and whatever it is, one day you're going to sin that sin for the last time. Because Jesus will set you free. And one day you'll be tempted to sin that sin for the last time. When he presents you faultless. We'll have a body that will never suffer again. It's fitted to enjoy glory for eternity. I will have flowing locks of hair again. I'll, do the, I'll be the guy in glory doing the L'Oreal advert. Look at, you know, it'll be me. Uh, with, yeah, me and you, brother, right? Yeah. It's coming. Um, all the aches and pains, all the things that grieve us will be gone. Amen? All right. Now, how do we live like it's true? How do you and I, in the meantime, live like that's true? That you and I are eagerly waiting for that day when we see Jesus and bask in his presence for all eternity. How do you live like it's true? Chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. That's how you live like it's true. Now, we have lots of different ideas about the return of Jesus Christians like to fall out about these things. We have pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-wrath, A-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, windmill. No, 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 that's not one of them. Sorry. Uh, we have all these differences, right? We argue back and forth and we, we dispute. And I'm not saying we shouldn't disagree and we shouldn't have our discussions about these things. There's a tr- there is a truth. One of them ha- either one of them is right or none of them are right and we've all got it wrong. But they can't, can't all be true, of course, right? There, there's one of them that's true. So we can have these discussions, we can have these debates, we can write our books, whatever. The problem is not that we disagree, the problem is how we disagree with one another in these areas. Isn't that the problem? How we disagree. You see it online, you see it in in, in speeches that are given, you see it in conferences where we're sarcastic to the other side. We're demeaning, we're cutting, we're vitriolic, we're arrogant, we're angry. And we claim that all that's justified because we're defending the truth of Scripture. But look at verse 5. If you believe the Lord's at hand, if you're so eager for his return, then let your gentleness be known to all men. The way to live like it's true, that Jesus is coming back one day, is verse 5. The word gentleness can be translated your moderation, your humility. I love this translation of it. Your kindliness. Let your kindliness be known. And the idea of let it be known to all men is this. Have a reputation for being gentle. When someone thinks about you, they think of someone who's gentle and humble and kindly. That's how to live like it's true that Jesus is coming back. That that's the reputation that you have in the world. So if you have a reputation for being harsh, for being unyielding, for being unkind. If people have to walk on eggshells around you, whether that's at home or at church or at work, if people are afraid to get in your way, then you're not living like it's true that Jesus is coming back. And you might be right on your theology. You might might have all the doctrinal things perfected. But if you don't live out verse five, you're not living like it's true that Jesus is coming back. So, uh, just to bring things to a conclusion for us this morning, but, and what I mean by that as a pastor is, we're going to have another 15 minutes. Uh, no, no, not really. As you read the letter to the Philippians, I encourage you to go home and read it. It's such a beautiful letter. How do you walk as a worthy citizen of the gospel? Paul says, humble unity amongst one another. How do you live as if you have the mind of Jesus? Paul says, humble unity with one another. How do you work out your salvation? Humble unity with one another. How do you shine as lights in a dark world? How do you hold forth the gospel to sinners? How do you seek the things of Christ? And how do you live as if Jesus is coming back? 
according to the letter to the Philippians, it's by living in humble, gentle, loving, serving unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just on a Sunday morning, because you can be on your best behavior for an hour on a Sunday, right? But in your life, at home, and at work, at school, at uni, doing life together as Christian family, encourage each other in Christ, being with each other on a Tuesday, inviting each other over for a meal on Thursday, and in those moments, loving one another. It's so easy on a Sunday to, to get this right. For an hour and a half, you all face the front. You don't even have to talk to each other. We all face the front and sing. We all face the front and listen to some guys speak. And then you all go home after a cup of coffee. It's all very simple. But what the New Testament's calling us to is a unity of togetherness where you start to rub off each other, where differences start to come out, where personalities start to, ah, uh, you know? And in those moments, love and patience, and gentleness, and kindness. The early church met together almost daily. And Paul said, in your daily life together, this is how you're called to live. So as we've explored all of this today, it can be easy to be discouraged by your failure and my failure. And believe me, as I've been preaching, there's things come up in my mind of like, yep, blew it this week, yeah? At home, blew it this week. And with friends, blew it this week in different ways. So let me, as we, as we close, let me point you to Jesus and to all that you are in him. Because it's only, it's only through Christ that we can live this way. So your past, let's go to Philippians 1, 6. I'm almost finished, I promise. I've got like that much left and then I'm done. Philippians 1, verse 6. I'm oh, sorry, verse 2 to begin with. Uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah? You've received his grace You've received this peace. Chapter 2, verse 1, you've received all of what we looked at earlier. That's your, that's your past. You've already received grace and peace from God. Verse 6 tells you that he has begun a good work in you. The moment you trusted Jesus as your Savior, he started this work in you of making you like his son. In your present, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's God who's working in you these things. We looked at that also in chapter 2, verse 13. God is working in you the strength and the desire to do this. So your past has been dealt with, you're forgiven, you've received grace and peace. Your present, God is actively working all of this in you and your future. Verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. He who's begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Everything he's calling you to, you one day will completely be because he's never going to give up that job. He's never going to give you up as a project. He's never going to say, that one's too far gone. He's going to finish what he started and he's going to complete that work and he's going to present you faultless, glorified before him. So you, Christian, you're forgiven and you're loved. You'll one day be perfect. And in the meantime, you have not been abandoned to do this yourself. Jesus is with you and for you, actively working in you. So let your failures in this area, which I hope we've all been like, man, I, I can see areas in my life this week, these last few weeks where I've blown it. Let those failures not drive you away from Jesus, but drive you to Jesus to experience his mercy and then his power to live the way he's calling us to live. That's how to walk worthy of the gospel. Amen.